Today's message is part four, entitled Dead Sea Scrolls, Zadokite Calendar, and the Samaritans. Hiswordheals.com forward slash B-L-O-G. Part four starts with another short clip from a lecture on the Dead Sea Scrolls by Gary A. Rensberg. Let's return to our narrative of the Hasmonean dynasty. The next king who rules is a king named John Hyrcanus. Under his reign, Judea expanded greatly, and John Hyrcanus con- conquered, in fact, other lands, including Edomia, the old land of Edom, as it's called in the Bible, now called Edomia. And these people, the Edomians, were forcibly converted to Judaism under John Hyrcanus. It's actually the only time in history that the Jews ever conquered another people and converted them to their own religion. John Hyrcanus also, con- also conquered the area of Samaria to the north, at which point he destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. Next, and in conclusion of this series of messages, we will read a scholarly article which can be found at jstor.org. jstor.org describes itself as providing access to more than 12 million scholarly journal articles, books, images, and primary sources in 75 disciplines. The journal article I will be reading excerpts from was written by Josephine Massingbird Ford, Professor Emerita of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, and is entitled, Can We Exclude Samaritan Influence from Qumran? This 21-page article was published in 1967 issue of Review de Qumran, Volume 6, Number 1. It begins by citing several works by John Bowman, the main one of which is entitled Contact Between Samaritan Sects and Qumran in Vitus Testamentum 8, 1957, and another work by John MacDonald entitled The Theology of the Samaritans, London, 1964. The article begins as follows. The identity of the Qumran sectaries with the Essenes has now been accepted by the majority of scholars, indeed so far that some have almost omitted all discussion of the matter from their works and speak without qualification of the, quote, Essenes of Qumran. This paper will not seek to dispute this identity, but to question whether it is sufficient to look for one type of Judaism at Qumran and to make it stand in contrast to other branches of the Jewish faith. The paper will argue that here we have an Essenism predating Philo and Josephus, in which we may see elements akin to Samaritan theology and a Judaism which represents no distinct division between the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom became eventually identified with the Samaritans, but our knowledge of Judaism in the second to third century before Christ is too meager for us to state definitively that Jews and Samaritans were without reciprocal influences, especially in view of their common heritages through the Old Testament and liturgical rites. Skipping down a bit, both kingdoms suffered from the common foe in the second and first centuries BC. The Samaritans suffered under Antiochus and John Hyrcanus destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim in 126 BC. This naturally caused a crisis among the Samaritans. Bowman quotes Yusuf B. Salama, When the temple was destroyed, some people did not see the need to make a pilgrimage to the mountain 
or to worship there. They said to worship in a synagogue was enough, and then comments that it was probably at that time that the sect of the Docythians began. This sect denied the sanctity of Mount Gerizim, emphasized praying in water, and held beliefs in the resurrection of the dead and a Messiah. They also had extra-biblical books. Thus, Docythians may be an example of peoples of Samaritan origin who were content to abandon Mount Gerizim. Skipping down a paragraph, Indeed, it may well be that Josephus' three divisions of the Jewish faith, namely Sadducees, Pharisees, and Essenes, may be Sadducees, Pharisees, and Samaritans. MacDonald notes that the Samaritan Chronicle, too, speaks of three classes of Israelites during the period before Christ, Pharisees, the enemy, Sadducees, said to be the later Karaites, and Hasidim, said to be the Samaritans. Skipping down another paragraph, the recent discoveries of cross of Samaritan skeletons, jewelry, pottery, papyri, property deeds, and marriage contracts in a cave near Jericho has added evidence that the Samaritans were not a poor and insignificant people, that they married Greeks and were to some extent Hellenized, but also that they were practicing Jews at the time of Alexandria. Some of them must have lived near Jericho. The latter fact is certainly not without significance for the influence on the sectarians of Qumran nearby. The paper will now ask what Samaritan thought is discernible in the Qumran writings. The Samaritan material on which one is obliged to work is unfortunately late. The writer uses mainly the Memar Marka, which MacDonald would date late 3rd century or early 4th century A.D., but which contains material and ideas of much greater antiquity. The writer would concur to some extent with Gaster, who believed that about the first century A.D., the Samaritan beliefs and practices may have become fossilized and remained practically unchanged down to this very day. Skipping down a bit, MacDonald has observed that the care with which the Samaritan scribes copied their precious law is matched only by that of the Judaist scribes or by the best scribes of the ancient Qumran community. Skipping to the next paragraph, among the biblical manuscripts found at Qumran, some versions reflect such traditions as that found in the Samaritan Pentateuch. There is evidence of the archaic Hebrew script used by the Samaritans and there are affinities with the Samaritan dialect in the language of the scrolls, as we saw earlier. Skipping down a bit, attention has been drawn to the fact that some of the graves at Qumran lie north to south instead of the more usual east to west. The present writer would like to suggest that one might consider that they are turned with the corpse's feet towards Mount Gerizim. This is and was the custom of the Samaritans to turn the feet of dying men, women, and children toward the holy mount. Then the oration of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 1-43, was recited. Added to this, the Samaritans did not seem to mind the proximity of graves, for some of their holiest men were buried on Mount Gerizim itself. 
Further, whether one accept the treasure scroll as fact or fiction, it is interesting to note that the treasures are buried both near Jerusalem and near Mount Gerizim. MacDonald points out that there was a legend of the hidden sanctuary which was current among the Samaritans about the first century AD. If the Qumran sectarians were only Jews, why should they trouble about treasure buried in a defiled land? Skipping down a paragraph, moreover, it is important to notice that nowhere in the Qumran literature are the Samaritans criticized. This is in contrast to the Mishnah, Talmud, Midrashim, etc. Although the actual name Samaritan does not occur in Qumran literature, yet one can find titles corresponding to those by which the Samaritans designated themselves. The Samaritans called themselves the keepers of the law. Now it is precisely this keeping of the law which is the reason deter of the Qumran community. Further, the title Sons of Light used by Qumran and of the Samaritans has been noted by Bowman. It is consonant with the Samaritan idea of the pure light which was handed down through the righteous ancestors and enjoyed by the elect, that is, the Samaritans. Akin to this idea is the title, the pure one, and the saints, which were used by both communities. However, the most compelling designation shared both by the Qumran sectarians and the Samaritans is the, quote-unquote, sons of Zadok. It is agreed that the Qumran sectarians could not be Sadducees. The Samaritans, however, claimed, and still claim, that their priests are descended from Aaron and presumably from the Jewish post-exilic Zadokite high priest Eliashab of Jerusalem, whose grandson married Sanballat's daughter, as we discussed earlier. Even today, the Samaritan priests appear to be the only descendants of Zadok who still act as sacrificial priests. That is, they are the only Hebrew priests in the world today. Bowman remarks that Ezekiel's claims for the Zadokites provided ammunition for the Samaritans and strengthened the claims of the Damascus and Dead Sea sectaries. However, it is possible to equate the two. The Zadokite priesthood at Qumran might well be the common priesthood shared by certain Samaritans and certain Jews. The Samaritan Zadokite priesthood was the only priesthood to remain after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It seems, therefore, that this sectarian movement by the Dead Sea should not entirely be equated more with the Essenes. The Essenes were not called the sons of Zadok and were not especially a priestly caste. Added to this, some had connections with Jerusalem. Nowhere is it recorded that they were hostile to Jerusalem. They must be people not accepting the Jerusalem priesthood. We can go no further than that. The Damascus Document We ask now whether the Damascus document could be of Samaritan Jewish origin. It does not seem necessary to try to allegorize the phrase land of Damascus. The phrase might indeed refer to the city and district of Damascus. There were certainly Samaritans at Damascus, and here they lived side by side with Jews. The Samaritans in Damascus may have had some important and lasting influence on the current thought systems of the Syrian region. 
It was an influential area in both the Old Testament and New Testament days, and even down to medieval times. MacDonald comments that Damascus, where there was a considerable and active Samaritan community, was the home of Maimonides. Damascus, indeed, seems to have had a long and ancient connection with Samaritan literary activity. It was there that Petro della Valle procured the copy of the Samaritan text of the Pentateuch and the Targum, which he piously deposited in the Vatican Library. Gaster adds that Della Velle found there a very large and beautiful synagogue belonging to them, richly decorated with inscriptions in gold. Here in Damascus, Essenes, Jews, and Samaritans lived together. It may well have been that for some reason they had to flee and come to the desert of Judea, bringing with them the Damascus document. The Damascus Jews probably had little allegiance to Jerusalem. One could see the Damascus document as a Samaritan-Jewish polemic against the Judaizers of Jerusalem, the enmity originating from the 6th century, but prolonged with varying intensity to the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. Skipping down a bit, further affinities between Samaritan theology and the Damascus document are found in the fact that only three righteous men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are mentioned in the Exhortation 3, 2-4. These three righteous ones, not counting Moses, who is above all men and angels, are the special saints of the Samaritans. Mamar Makkah, pages 9-11, through speaks of the three perfect ones with whom I made covenants. Further, the glory of the man, or Adam, is mentioned in Damascus Document 3. The Samaritans have much to say about the glory of man. They believed that Adam was created with divine light in him and that this light continued to shine even after the expulsion from Eden. Moses is called the man. This might mean, therefore, that the glory of Moses will be the portion of the elect, but the glory of Adam and Moses would be almost identical. Finally, one should comment that the strict laws about purity and the Sabbath are wholly consonant with the Samaritan ways. Skipping down a bit, another interesting parallel between the Samaritans' practices and the Qumran sectarians occurs in the authority of the sons of Zadok over property. Bowman makes an important observation. He points out that the Samaritans kept Nazarite vows at least until the 11th century A.D. For the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. did not affect the fulfillment of Samaritan Nazarite vows. From a late source, we learn that the Nazir among the Samaritan abstains from the work of the world and its pleasures and is like the high priest in holiness. He dwells with the priests. He lives with other men and women who have taken the vow. If a person had become a perpetual Nazir, he lived under the direction of the high priest, and presumably he would give all his possessions. The Samaritan Nazir was obligated to be a Nazir for a year. Bobin concludes that the Zadokite priests on leaving Jerusalem in the second century may have tried to live in a community as perpetual Nazarites, and that one ventures to wonder whether the Qumran sect's two initiatory years were not based on a Nazarite vow of one year each. 
This is an attractive theory and would certainly explain the difference between the living conditions envisaged in the Damascus document and the rule of the community and also provide a reason for the presence of women's bones in the Qumran cemetery. Skipping down a bit, liturgy, perhaps the most concrete connection between the Qumran community and the Samaritans is their common use of the solar calendar which apparently was not used by the Sadducees, Pharisees, and we are not certain that it was used by the Essenes. The Samaritans equally, with Qumran, stressed the absolute necessity of keeping the appointed times. The secret of the calendar resided with the high priest and was handed down from high priest to high priest. It was necessary to know the exact conjunction of the sun and the moon if the festivals are to take place at the correct time. Lini has recently pointed out the importance of astronomy for the life of the community. No Hebrew people were more sensitive to the relationship of life and worship to the heavenly bodies and the laws of the universe than the Samaritans. Like most Semitic people, they were interested in the zodiac tables and decorated their synagogues with zodiac frescoes. As for the festivals kept by the Samaritans, we have already discussed the Feast of Weeks, but the most outstanding event in the Samaritan year was the Day of Atonement. The Samaritans were preoccupied with penitence, especially when national crises threatened. We may compare the members of Qumran, who called themselves the penitents of Israel. We may note that neither Purim nor the Feast of Dedication is mentioned either among the Samaritans or at Qumran. Indeed, this might explain why no fragment of the book of Esther has been found. The Samaritans did not keep the Feast of Purim. Skipping down a bit, Belief in angels is found among the Samaritans from earliest times. MacDonald comments that, No Near Eastern religion is more abundant than that of the Samaritans in reference to the angels and to their place in the affairs of the world. But the Samaritan beliefs in angels are closer to the Christian beliefs than the Jewish. The names of angels occur here and there in the liturgy, liturgy, and four names, Phanuel, Anusa, Kabbalah, and Nasi, are especially mentioned. The beliefs are derived from the exegesis of the Pentateuch. There are frequent references to angels, powers, and principalities. Angels are especially concerned with worship and the giving of the law. MacDonald quotes a translation from Cowley, which expresses the general attitude of the Samaritans. Quote, In the evening and the morning the angels of the Lord are present wherever men pray. The angels of the Lord come around about, for it pleases the angels to hear the praises of their Lord at all times. There is no emphasis on evil angels, although names like Belial do occur. The mystic especially may see angels. It seems, therefore, that the angelic liturgy of Qumran would fit admirably into Samaritan theology. The Teacher of Righteousness At this point it would seem convenient to discuss the Samaritan idea of the Tahib and to ask whether to any extent he resembles the Teacher of Righteousness at Qumran. Bowman avers that there was a fairly concrete set of beliefs about the Tahib by the first century AD. The Tahib was to restore and bring victory to the elect, but to have nothing to do with the day of vengeance. In more developed thought, he was regarded as a priest who would restore true worship, reveal the truth, and unite all Israel, Judah, and Ephraim. 
under his banner. The Tahib will have power like the prophets of old. He will gather the scattered and bring them from persecution into freedom. He will rebuild the temple on Mount Gerizim, but above all will be instrumental in giving the world the true law. People will accept this law just as the Israelites accepted it in the wilderness. The Tahib, however, is a human figure. He must be from the tribe of Levi, and he will pass away. We have very little information about the teacher of righteousness, and therefore we cannot say whether he fulfills the role of the Samaritan Tahib. He does, however, make a better Tahib than a pre-Christian Jesus of Nazareth. The following points are common to the teacher of righteousness and the Samaritan Tahib. They are both lawgivers. Their duty is to reveal the truth and to destroy the lie. The figure of the star is probably connected with both from Numbers 24:17. The teacher of righteousness is called the stave. There may be some link here if, as E. Cothanet suggests, there is a play on the word stave and one who searched the law. There are further resemblances if, as he seems to be, the Tahib is a second Moses. In Samaritan theology, Moses is called the righteous one, the faithful one, the master of knowledge, the son of God's house, the man, the priest over God's house. As Bowman comments, the Tahib appears to be modeled on Ezekiel's Nasi, but referred back to Moses rather than David's stock. If this is so, Ezekiel may have been the inspiration for the Tahib and the teacher of righteousness. Indeed, one might be able to equate the two. Skipping down a bit, the idea of revelation. Whereas the teacher of righteousness was the revealer of the law par excellence, the Qumran sectarians saw the role of the whole community to be seeking after the hidden meanings of the law. This idea of revelation is not foreign to Samaritan theology. Indeed, for the Samaritan, the chief means of revelation were study, scripture, and pursuit of wisdom. Revelation came chiefly through the priests, but the very special gift of revelation resided in the high priesthood. The high priest possessed a mystical knowledge transmitted from high priest to high priest and having its original sources in Moses. He is a figure not unlike the teacher of the Qumran community. The Samaritans also experienced revelation through dreams and visions and could certainly have applied Pesher both to dreams and scripture. A prominent feature in Samaritan theology is prophetic inspiration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is often expressed by light. Like Qumran, the Samaritan literature influenced by philosophical concepts and bears characteristics akin to the wisdom literature. For example, the Samaritan idea of God is not without philosophical concepts, but Samaritan theology is not Gnostic and does not regard matter as evil. Skipping down to the conclusion, Samaritan theological thought and practices, then, are not disconsonant with those which we know to have obtained at Qumran. Although one cannot identify the Qumran sectarians and the Samaritans, yet the present writer would suggest that the Samaritans thought influenced the theology of Qumran and that perhaps people whom later we include among the Samaritans may have been present at Qumran. 
If the Essenes were a branch of the Samaritans, then these Samaritan elements at Qumran are understandable. We have yet to discover the importance of these Samaritan peoples. It is not unreasonable to suppose that they might well have been the authors or compilers of a proportion of the pseudepigraphal literature, especially those works which stress the solar calendar, the patriarchs, the Jewish ancestors, and mysticism. A decision on this matter would not be without tremendous importance for the study of early Christianity. This paper does not pretend to be anything more than a preliminary suggestion on this subject and a plea not to forget the Samaritans at Qumran. It is hoped that when Professor Frank M. Cross's papyri are published, it might be possible to make further venture into this field. This almost two-hour study is only touching on some of the main reasons to be skeptical with regards to the doctrines and calendar found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Considering all of the information available, both scriptural and scholarly, with regard to a very probable connection between the quote-unquote sons of Zadok inhabitants of Qumran and the apostate Zadok priests of the Samaritans, why are some being so quick to advocate switching from the historic lunisolar Hebrew biblical calendar to a solar-only calendar whose 60 fragmented pieces were found in a cave and took over a year to decipher. Please prayerfully study to show yourself approved and avoid a possible great deception that, if it were possible, will deceive even the very elect. Remember, Sanballat encouraged Alexander the Great to support two different temples and to keep the Jewish people divided in order to have more control over them. The enemy is still seeking to divide Yahweh's people today. HisWordHeals.com forward slash blog to listen to the entire message.